this is Art Berman. I'm the director of Labyrinth Consulting Services in Houston. Excellent. Thank you for joining the program here today. We got some good levels coming in. I'm out in the kind of on a remote location, so you might hear a construction equipment start up and that sort of thing. One of the beauties of uh, the crude life, every now and then we can go out on location and do some shows inside of a work shed or one of those storage container type of a things. Are you down in Houston today? I am. I'm, uh, I live just outside the city in a place called Sugarland, Texas. Sugarland, Texas. Great name. Uh, one of the reasons we wanted to bring Mr. Art Berman on today was was a couple fold. Uh, one, he's got a very interesting uh, background, which makes his perspective a bit unique. And I'm looking at his website right now, and that's one of the things he points out. I didn't realize that you have a degree in Middle Eastern history. That's that's um that does give you a unique perspective, doesn't it? It does, and and people people comment and they say, "Oh, that's such a." You know, how strange to have a degree in history and a degree in geology, but uh, to me, they're they're related to sort of different scales. And of course, um, you know, being involved in oil, it's, it's useful to know a little bit about the Middle East, its culture, its religion, etc. It's uh, it wasn't intentional that I followed the paths, but that's just what I did. Yeah, at, sometimes in life it seems like the pieces kind of go together like a you know like a puzzle. You, you start putting together things. Wanted to ask you about the COVID nineteen impact, some of the coronavirus impacts. Uh, what's your take on what's been going on? And if you want to go all the way back into last year, for me personally, I say that the coronavirus kind of impacted the oil and gas industry last year when uh, it hit China. But um, I'll let you kind of pick up wherever you'd like on that. Well, I think uh, I think you're right, Jason. The, I mean, looking at at both global and North American data, uh, it seems clear that there certainly were effects um, in the global market um, back in the in the last part of, of 2019. Uh, looking at, at U.S. consumption data, both of oil and natural gas. Uh, there, you know, it, it's easy when you know the answer, <laughs> you know, to to see uh, anomalies that you know maybe otherwise would have been, uh, you know, just well we don't, you know, that's noise or we don't understand that. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, and, and and the other thing I I, I think is important is uh, people have a have a funny idea that you know that the economy works like a light switch and and that you. You know, we turned it off, and yeah, all these things happened because of coronavirus, and and now we've turned it on, and everything is just going to come roaring back, and uh, everything is going to be, you know, like it was before. And uh, I certainly, uh, well, I, I mean, I wish that were true, both parts, the the on-off switch, and and that it will be as before. But uh, I seriously doubt that that you know that either of those scenarios will play out according to expectation. One of the things that I found rather interesting about um, the coronavirus was how many different industries outside of oil and gas that are connected to oil and gas that got impacted. What I mean is a lot of trucking companies, you know, and maybe there's an accountant whose husband works for Baker Hughes and 
you know, a few of the truckers that work underneath Baker Hughes use the, you know, the flow flowback operator's wife as an accountant type of a thing. And and those are the sole proprietors and the secondary small businesses that do not get counted in the oil and gas industry, but they got impacted early on last year, last quarter, early on, that type of thing. Have you ever thought of that or has that been thrown into any of the discussions when it comes to the economy that you know about? Well, the economy and economists and an awful lot of people are are energy blind. They uh, and, and and it's fine. I mean, it's not a it's not a criticism. It's just it's just a fact. And and so uh, people think oil as sort of a secular topic. You know, we can talk about football. We can talk about church. We can talk about oil. We can talk about politics. And and the reality is is that oil energy in general um really is the economy uh energy is the economy and oil is the 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 most critical part of of the energy mix and so part of the reason i believe that that oil has been so strongly and negatively affected by the coronavirus economic shutdowns is for the reason I just said. So oil is a bellwether, and what happens to oil uh, eventually trickles through to all aspects of the economy. And so what you just described, no, that, that, that's never lost on me. I mean, I live in oil country just like you do, and uh, I know um, that there are entire towns in, uh, you know, in Texas for whom the oil business and all of the you know, the hotels and the restaurants and the transport, you know, it's all, I mean, oil is a substantial part of the economy of a lot of, a lot of towns in Texas. And there was a big boom, particularly with, you know, the Eagleford Shale and the Permian Basin here in Texas. And uh, the Eagleford fell off sooner, but, a lot of the towns just south of me in the Eagleford play, you know, they've been hurting for a long time. And school boards don't have enough money and highways are worn out from all the truck traffic and there isn't enough tax revenue to, you know, put them back together. So, yeah, it's, um, there, there's a, there's a, a aspera, if you will, of, of industries that uh, rely on on oil, even though the people who work in them maybe have nothing directly to do with, with, with oil production or, or refining. Art Berman is our guest. I, I wanted to accentuate on your comment about oil is the economy. And of course, you know, we know 90 to 96% of our daily goods from toothpaste to toothbrush to the gas to get the toothpaste to your house, of course, is petroleum products. So when you think about how much of our daily lives, that's one aspect of it. But another aspect of it is, uh, I, I bring this up every now and then on this program about, oh, 10, 12, 15 years ago, I was having a few highballs after happy hour with a gentleman. And he was a smart guy like yourself in terms of the economy and how kind of the world worked. And he said that the dollar is backed or the monetary power, which is the dollar at the time, 
is backed by the military that can protect the oil reserves. And I thought, boy, that's a great way to talk about the economy. Whoever can kind of control and back and protect the oil reserves, because really that's what makes the economy work. And that's what I thought of when you said that. So I don't know if you got a comment on that or if, if we can go ahead and move to the next next question or not. Well, let me, let me say a few things about that. Um, I think it's even more fundamental than, you know, than, than your friend over, over highballs, uh, suggested that, <clears throat> that, I mean, the, the, the entire economy, and I don't mean just the economy today, but forever, uh, I mean, you have to do work to, to survive. You have to work to get food and most of the work that's done in today's world is done by oil, gas, natural gas, and, and coal. And so in early economies, um, when, when, when people started to accumulate surplus goods, which is to say agriculture, uh, you know, maybe I had a bunch of hay in my barn or wheat, and I didn't feel like doing some physical work, so I'd say, hey, Jason, uh, you know, if you'll go out and plow my field uh, in exchange for that, I'll give you a couple of bushels of wheat. How about that? And you know, maybe you say yes, and maybe you say no. But basically, I, I was I, I'm giving you a source of energy in the wheat, which you can eat, um, in exchange for your physical output of work, calories. And so, over time, uh, we've changed our the basis of our energy and our and our economies, but uh, that basic trade has not changed. And so, uh, basically, money is just—it's uh, just a claim on energy. You know, it's a way of saying, well, may- maybe you don't want three bushels of wheat to plow my field, but how about if I give you currency, which is a claim on bushels of wheat? Uh, I'll just give you five shekels. And you can take that five shekels and go out and buy your own bushels of wheat, or maybe maybe you'd like some wheat and some barley or, or whatever. So so money is just uh, it's just a claim on on energy, which in our world is oil. So that that's a paradigm that maybe people would like to think about for a while. Shifting gears, I'd like to transition into some of the discussions that have percolated out of the Texas Railroad Commission have also popped up in a couple other states as well. And, and, and basically it's about nationalizing oil or having some states come in and control production. And um, it kind of, I, I, I like to frame it like this and, and you can, you know, reframe it if you'd like, but in, in my kind of context, I remember back in early March before any bailouts really started, there was a the talk of bailing out the oil and gas industry. Cause as I mentioned, you know, what, Whiting was laying a third of its staff off last July. Chesapeake, Baker, Hughes in October were laying off people. So the oil and gas industry got hit last year for a variety of reasons. And but they, they still they got hit when the bailout talk started. Uh, Mike Summers, API president. I mean, I joke and say before the reporter finished the question, he knee jerk said, absolutely not. No bailouts. Well, then about a month later. Matt Gallagher from Parsley Energy goes on CNBC and talks about, well, maybe the Texas Railroad Commission should step in and start controlling production. 
Well, since then, we've had Oklahoma and North Dakota have discussions about it as well. So it's a real discussion now when we start talking about this. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not for it. I'm not against it at this point right now. I am kind of just in awe that the discussion's happening, I guess. I side on capitalism first, but I've, that's been gone for a long time. So, um, what, 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 where do you fall on this? What are your comments on this? I'm very curious to hear what you have to say on this. Sure. Well, I mean, the Texas Railroad Commission, the Oklahoma Corporation Commission, and the Louisiana Department of Natural Resources fixed oil prices from the 1930s until the early 1970s. I mean, they through the Texas Railroad Commission and collaboration, compliance by Oklahoma and Louisiana, uh, oil prices were, were, were controlled. And they were controlled by um, limiting the amount of output uh, from wells. So if I brought on a new well, somebody from the Texas Railroad Commission would come out and witness it. Uh, Based on the test, the commission would say, okay, this is how much your well is capable of making, and this is what your allowable rate is. And that was done both to control prices, but also as a conservation method. Now, all these states, they're... Their regulatory commissions were put in place to conserve natural resources, to prevent pollution, and to protect the financial interests of the citizens. Now, a lot of that you know, sort of got lost on people, but um, basically all that was given up once the United States became a net importer when our production peaked. So back to your question. Uh, you know, to my way of thinking, it was an interesting discussion that maybe these agencies were going to regulate production. The reality is, is that uh, the market took care of that for us, <laughs> as I expected it would. Um, nothing like uh, negative oil prices to get people to shut in production real quickly. So, you know, I think it's kind of a dead issue at this point because the the crisis of of storage filling up was uh, avoided because so much production was was shut in. That doesn't mean we're completely out of the woods on that because people are starting to you know to re- companies are reactivating their wells. But uh, nonetheless, I think that um, we are, as you said, I mean we don't we don't have a free economy. We we have a managed economy, and uh, with with the economic shutdown, the coronavirus, uh, the level of, of, of management has expanded tremendously. And I, I don't think we're, I don't see us going back to anything approaching the free market system. But in the oil business, the market works pretty well. Well, it's interesting you say the managed economy versus the free economy. I wrote that down. That's terrific, by the way. Art Berman uh, is our guest. He does this uh, stuff for a living. So if you want to go to artberman.com, he's got uh, newsletters as well as uh, some other content that can uh, certainly be recycled and made money on your side of things. And I'll ask you about um, how you're making money in just a second or two as uh, we conclude the interview, because I I, I don't know if you're even speaking at all now that the coronavirus has kicked in gear, because I know that's uh, that was... That was a source of income, I imagine, was getting out there on the speaking circuit, whether it's selling books or getting fees or all kinds of things. I 
my heart went out to all you guys right away. I mean, that was a, a raw, you know, even from rock and roll musicians to speakers to whoever. I mean, a big, big part of their new economy was the live event. Because anyway, so um, uh, where where was I going? Uh, shoot, give yourself a plug while I regroup myself. I got I, I got excited thinking about that for a second. So um. Are you, are you getting back out on the road at all, doing any speaking, or are you just doing uh, no. newsletters and things? No, I, yeah, so uh, if you get to uh, most of what's on there is free content. Uh, you don't have to register, um, which is free, um, you know, to actually get into the site, but most of what I put out there is free. There are some, uh, you know, weekly and monthly uh, paid content, which is pretty cheap. I mean, I put out a, a weekly uh, comparative inventory and oil storage report, and I'm starting one on gas. You mentioned a newsletter. There's a rig count report. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not designed for, for you know, high-end, uh, high-cost payers. It's just, you know, good insight. So, but, yeah, the speaking, public speaking, that's, that's a dead item for now. Um, and you're right. I mean, that was... That was a pretty important part of my livelihood, but um, you know we move on and, and adjust. Yeah, I've, I, this is I think my fourth reinvention in twenty years. Um, you know, I came from the media side of things, and the internet was our paradigm shift. I mean, when the Los Angeles Times loses ninety percent in classified ad revenue in one year because of Craigslist, that's a paradigm shift. You know, that's yeah, it is. You got to adjust and. I, I tell people all the time that when you have a monopoly for a hundred years, like a newspaper had in most towns, and you got to file bankruptcy or or get bought out, that's a paradigm shift. And a lot of newspapers and media still haven't figured out how to uh, adjust or make revenue or figure. It out. I tell people all the time, worst worst business deci- decision I ever made in my life was going on the internet. That was the worst decision, business choice I ever made because I did never made close anywhere close to the money I put into it, you know. But um, I, I did want to go back to that uh, the, the free market managed market because one thing that I, I think is kind of important to talk about, and and maybe you'll disagree or agree with me, but back in the 1970s, and I only know this mostly from history because I was a child at the time, but I do remember lines at the gas pump and et cetera. And one of the things that was interesting when I kind of look back at the history, before the shale boom happened, really only, what, 15 to 20% of the marketplace was private. The rest was pretty much countries that controlled the global oil, uh, you know, market. And um, I I think it's a little bit different this time. I don't know if we're going back to that, trying to get back to that 20% of just private and the rest is you know, countries controlling it, like China and Saudi Arabia or what. But um, do you know what I mean by that? That the shale revolutions really what, what allowed the, the the private sector to really explode in oil and gas once again, because the 1990s was nothing. I mean, there was, you didn't hear anything from energy in the 90s. Well, you have to go back a little bit further. I mean, I think the, the the global picture was... Um, probably 75% public companies, you know, companies you could buy stock in, which you're calling private, but I'm calling public, and about 25% national oil companies before 
the 1980s, 1990s, and then, you know, it's it switched, and uh, national oil companies um, started appropriating, basically, the, the public companies that were doing business in their countries, and, you know, I mean, in, in Mexico, it happened earlier than that in the 30s, but, you know, it happened in Venezuela, it happened all over the world, and so by the, you know, by the turn of this last century, uh, it was probably, you know, closer to 75-25, and, you know, that has moved around, and I don't know what the right number is, you know, maybe it's migrated back to 50-50 or something like that, but, I, you know, we, we talk a lot about the shale revolution, and, it, it, you know, it's... Um, I guess we use the word revolution awfully freely, but um, <laughs> I mean, shale is a big deal for those of us who are here in the United States. Um, it's made a big difference to, to U.S. production. It's kind of changed the balance of global production. But I mean, as, as a proportion of reserves, I mean, it's still pretty small. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little squeamish about you know, getting getting too far down the road with the revolution, uh, but but to your to your point and your question, Jason, I mean, there's a ton of little companies that are simply not going to survive what's already happened, much less what's going to happen. Um, so the the main theme that people should be aware of is that the effect of shutting in production over the last two months or so is that an awful lot of public companies, small public companies, independents, if you will, have no revenue. And they have debt. They have huge debt. And so there's no way to pay the interest expense. And so right now they're turning their wells on as fast as they can to try to get some cash flow to make those back payments. Because if they don't, um, they'll have to declare bankruptcy. And so I've said, and I continue to believe this, that there will be a tremendous number of small companies that cease to exist in the near future, oil companies in the United States, and they won't be bought by Exxon or Chevron or Conoco. Um, they will become the property of the uh, you know, it's the same way as General Motors is de facto owned by the U.S. government after the 2008 financial collapse. So this company has to go bankrupt, and nobody's willing to buy them. And, and, and I mean, gosh, you've know, got these majors, including Shell, who you know are not even able to pay their dividends. So can you imagine them saying, oh, yeah, we're going to spend... X number of billion dollars to buy these, you know, these little oil and gas companies uh, at a time when the world has more oil than it knows what to do with. That, that's not going to happen, in my opinion. Um, I'm prepared to be wrong, as I always am, but I think that, uh, I mean, again, we, we use words carefully. Is it, is it a, are we a socialistic country or is it a managed economy? Um, is the United States government going to nationalize oil companies, or will it become the, the de facto owner as it did General Motors? Choose your language any way you like. Um, language has, has a connotation, but one way or another, that's what I see as a, as a probability, maybe a strong probability. 
Well, I would agree with you. In fact, you can go back on my interviews last October and November when we started our our uh, marketing campaign, Ready for Anything. And the reason we would say Ready for Anything is because we said you're going to start to see the shift in 2020 down to maybe 20 companies across the globe that make up 90, 95% of the marketplace. And by companies, it could be, you know, Saudi Arabia, whatever their IPO is and China and, you know, countries acting as companies, so to speak. And I thought it was going to be a 16-year-old girl that was going to bring down the industry, but it ended up pretty much being a virus. And a lot of these issues really did start last year. And so I I think the virus kind of sped it up a little bit. And that's, to me, why I think the reading of your tea leaves are a little bit more on the accurate side than inaccurate side, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I I tried to point out to people that the the price collapse, that uh, oil price collapse that took place in the fourth quarter of 2018, uh, that was a really strong signal to the oil industry worldwide that something needs to change. And people, you know, they, they didn't, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, that's, that, that's art. You know, he's got some funny ideas. But um, the, the truth is that, speaking of managed economies, I mean, the oil market has been managed since the end of 2016, we have had OPEC plus withholding, you know, a million and a half, two million barrels a day since 2016. And now we're up to almost 10 million barrels a day. Okay. So we've got a managed oil market and that doesn't work very well for very long. So the market in 2018 was saying, look guys, we have so much spare capacity and so much excess production that, you know, we're going to send you a, a price signal and the price went down into the 40s and everybody recovered and said, okay, that was a blip. I don't think it was a blip. And so when you say that the coronavirus you know, kind of reactivated or accelerated trends that were already existing right on, absolutely. You ignored my price signal in late 2018 so how about the price signal that we're getting right now is that strong enough for you um so you know we we hear analysts and you know the head of ross naft oh you know the world is going to be there's going to be a supply shortage in a couple of months well no not really (laughs) all that has to happen is is that opec plus stops withholding 9.7 million barrels a day and there's no there's no shortage anymore. Um, you know, we had a Saudi refinery, the main, the biggest, most important refinery in the world, uh, attacked, blown up in parts in September 2019. And oil prices they spiked for a day or two, and then it was over. And you know, people are saying, "Wow, what the heck?" I mean, any time in the past that would have pushed oil prices to 150 dollars because the market knows. There's a ton of spare supply that's sitting out there. You can't manage an oil market for four years without having some unanticipated consequences. So you're right. The coronavirus was the trigger. But in my opinion, whether you're talking oil industry or the, the greater economy, 
it just accelerated trends that were already there. And, you know, and I, I'm looking at the clock here, so I don't want to keep you too long, but it, it, one of the things I did want to mention is kind of telling the bigger story and moving things along is what's going on in China right now with the natural gas market with, they're calling it a consolidation, but generally when a state's requiring the three biggest state-held oil corporations to do something, that's that's pretty significant. And... I, I, I don't know. I, I think that's more of the trend, more of the same trend with certain things, the way whether it's by bankrupt or by force, it just seems like more and more countries are getting their hands on uh, control of the energy. Let's just call it that control of the energy supply. Um, have, you, have you started to look into this uh, consolidation or for, force takeover in China, whatever you want to call it? Well, those Chinese state, you know, those are basically state oil companies to begin with. <laughs> you know, PetroChina and Sinopec and, you know, CNOC. I mean, they're, they're only uh, marginally, you know, they're traded publicly. Um, so in the same way that, you know, 5% of Saudi Aramco is now traded publicly, they're not, you know, they're not exclusively national oil companies anymore, but anyone who's Chinese government doesn't have society say whatever happens. No, I think if you look at um, and go back to where we started this conversation, Jason, energy is the economy. Um, you know, I cannot think of a war in the history of man that wasn't fundamentally fought over resources, whether those resources were, you know, were livestock or uh, you know, jewelry or gold or oil and gas or coal. I mean, they're they're all about something, and and China and the United States are, uh, you know, the, these are the two major world powers that are vying for supremacy. And you cannot, you cannot. So China has a problem in that it it imports an awful lot of the energy that it needs. It's really hard to be the dominant power in the world if you have to rely on other countries for your your energy i mean that's just that's just the way it is and so uh i think that china is trying to convert the oil market into a buyer's market that that, that you know there's nothing they can do about increasing their own supply but they by buying all this oil and refining oil and dumping it cheaply on the market they are in effect converting it into a buyer's market. And if the buyers control what happens versus the, the producers and exporters, that works to their advantage. Yeah, I just found it interesting. I mean, as you mentioned, it, you know, there's state oil. So it, the only thing it really did is just kind of centralized power a little bit more, sped up timing on, on things. That's how I looked at it is it just took out some red right. tape which is kind of different for a government to do. <laughs> Normally they try to add red tape. So this would, uh, anyway, but, uh, well, go ahead and give yourself a plug on how people can, uh, um, are you speaking now? Is, is it, is it, are, are you back on, on the road again? I mean, I don't know if conferences are, but, um, I imagine you're ready to travel. I've been doing, um, I've been doing most of my speaking, uh, on Zoom, to be oh. honest with you. And uh, so I see that as, you know, as, as part of uh, the way the future will be different, not just for people like me, but for business in general. 
Um, no, I, I don't have any. I've got one, uh, you know, one speaking engagement uh, that will require me to travel. Uh, I think it'll be in October, and that's you know that that's the nearest. So that that's different. But yeah, back to I mean, if you want to see what I'm doing or thinking about, uh, artberman.com is my website. Uh, I'm active on Twitter uh, at aeberman12. And um, you know, if you if you just want free information, uh, you, you can get it in both places. If if you want a little bit more information that might help you in your your investment decisions and strategies, uh, you know, for uh, not very much money a month, uh, you can get those those better insight and content at artberman.com. Excellent. Uh, thank you, sir. Appreciate the time today. Good to talk again, Jason. Thank you.